You sound like a bunch of sick seals. <laughs> okay, ladies, we're going to start now on steps eight and nine, our favorite steps, aren't they? Don't you just love amends? <laughs> Step eight says we made a list of all the persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Now, who goes on this list? And why do you have to make one of those? I said, why can't we just let bygones be bygones? You know, but did you ever go around people that you felt uncomfortable or just being around them and you didn't really know why? And if you look at it, you know why. You've done something and you don't feel comfortable around that person because there's been a break in your relationship. You know, when we were practicing all these character defects that we found in four and five, and then we become willing to do something different, that means that that's going to take care of us in the now. But it's not going to correct what we've done in the past. And you're going to have to clean up the wreckage of your past before you're going to feel good in the now. And if you don't feel good in the now, you're pretty much going to be feeling good in the future. You'll be a lot better to equip what happens as life comes down the road. Now, on this list, I said, well, I don't know who to put on this list. And she said, uh, my sponsor said, well, you might start out with everybody you know. <laughs> and I thought, well, that was a tacky comment, you know. But that was the truth. Start out by, and, and the first people I listed were the people that I felt owed me an amends. She said, put, what's your shit list? Put those people down first. And I thought, I, I'm going to like this. I'm really going to like this. And then when we got through with that, she said, now anybody that you, that you know you've hurt. And, of course, there are some that you know that you've hurt. And then she said, okay, now one that you feel like there's something wrong between you two, that you don't feel comfortable when you're around them. Okay, I put those down there. And she said, now we'll get to some of the institutions. And I said, what do you mean? She said, you know, like the stores when you shoplift. Uh, and I said, oh, those. <laughs> oh, funny you should forget those. Um... Those kind of things. She said, we're going to put all that. We're going to put all this on the list. And then when we get our list made, we're going to divide that list into three categories. We're going to do now, later, and never. I said, oh, I like, I like never. I like that category. And the ones that I found I could put in the now. Now, the people that I resented, the people that were on my shit list, so to speak, these were people that I was mad at. And usually what I was mad at was their reaction to something that I had done. You know? If you ever look at the resentment, you know, and to realize that those people don't resent you for nothing. And, you know, I resented them for resenting me. I resented the fact that people... Yes? That people would not let me run over them for free. <laughs> I certainly hope one of y'all are doing that. <laughs> and so I had to put all these people on this list. Now, see, this step is not a hard thing. It's just putting them down. The hard part to me was becoming willing to make an amends. Now, let's talk about amends. Amends is not apology. It doesn't say made direct apology. And see, that's what I see a lot of people doing, and that's what I wanted to do, was to go up and say, I'm sorry that I did what I did to you. That doesn't change a thing. And amends corrects 
heals, changes. I'm sorry, changes nothing. And I know from experience, my husband would come in and say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry for the same thing. And there's no point in trying to make an amends if you're going to continue to do that because it's not going to be valid. So make sure. To me, part of the becoming willing to make the amends was become willing not to do that to anybody anymore. And that's a little harder. Now, how do you make an amends? How do you make an amends? Well, I didn't know how. Many times I don't know how to correct what is wrong. Now, if I stole $10 from you, I know you $10. And if I took uh, money or clothing or whatever, I know there's value and stuff like that. That's easy enough to say. I can take that and how long I've had it and, and, and do uh, an interest figure and come up with a reasonable amount to pay somebody back. That's not a big deal. But what's a big deal is those hurts and things that I've done to you that money can't fix. Now what do you do? I never know what it will take to fix those things. All I know is what I would do if I were them. But I'm not them. So I found that a simple thing for me that helps me, and it takes the burden of trying to figure it out off of me, is I ask them, Jane, what have I done? What could I do to you to make up to you for what I've done? And then I let Jane tell me what I can do to, to mend that relationship. Because, see, she knows. I had a girl tell me one time that uh, she never wanted to see me again as long as she lived. I said, I can handle that. I can handle that. You know, if their request is within reason and it's humanly possible, I try to do it. Because I am putting the ball in their court and I'm saying, what can I do to heal that for you? And this girl said, she never wanted to lay eyes on me again. And I said, okay. And I have done my darndest to stay out of her way. When I know that she's going to be somewhere, I try not to rub myself on her. And, you know, used to, I got a lot of pleasure out of showing up when I knew I made somebody uncomfortable. I don't know about y'all, but I can really be a vindictive bitch when I want to be. But she, that's what she asked me to do, so I can do that for her. Now, I had a column on my list uh, of the now. Now, I was a very, I don't know, is there anybody here that ever worked in a grocery store? Or is a checkout girl? Okay. Figures. Figures. These were the recipients of a lot of my anger. Because I would use, I had a lot of inappropriate anger. And I would be mad and upset and I would go to the grocery store. And I would take it out on the people who were there. Because I was a weenie and I didn't have the guts to take it out on the person I wanted to. Especially if I was mad at my mother and I was afraid of my mother. I'd go to the store and I found someone who reminded me like my mother and I'd attack her. You know, I would find something wrong, I would be uh, sarcastic, I would be rude, I would do these things. And I can remember how they used to go, oh God, she's coming in the store. You could see they had that kind of look. You'd see them over there talking and they would try and avoid me. It's, you know, they'd flip a coin and whoever lost had to check me out. Because I've been known to be so ugly that I was even talked to by the manager of one of the grocery stores about my being ugly and rude to the people in there. Now, that's pretty bad. Because, you know, usually, as long as you're spending money in that store, they don't really give a rip. But the girls, the poor girls at the checkout did. So how do I make an amends? Well, some of those girls are no longer there. I don't know how to make an amends to them. But I can make a living amends by not treating people in the public workplace like that anymore. And I begin to ask God, and I ask Him to forgive me for what I have done. Now, it's real important for me when I go out to make an amends 
that I forgive me first. And my forgiveness and my good feelings cannot be based upon your response. Because if they are, then I may go away never feeling good. I have to forgive you, I have to forgive me, and then I can go to you. And then if you don't forgive me, I'm still okay. But if all my feelings are going to be based on your reaction, I may not be okay. So it's important to me to forgive me first. And I asked God, I said, God, help me to be the kind of person that you would want me to be. God, help me to be a loving customer. Let me express God's love as best I can to the people around me. Now, that's how I make a living amends. I want to tell you about that living amends. I trade at uh, Albertsons at home. We have Skaggs Albertsons. And I go in there, and when I go in, there's people standing in the door that say, Hey, Miss Thompson, we're glad you're here today. The checker will say to me, I always enjoy checking you out because you're always so cheerful. Because, you see, I made up my mind when I went in those stores, I was going to be cheerful if you kill me. I was going to be nice to those people at the checkout, and I was going to bend over backwards. I wasn't going to rip them off with coupons anymore. I wasn't going to try and pass those expired ones. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wasn't going to put a coupon in for one brand and take another. I used to play those silly, dishonest games, and I said, I'm not going to do that anymore. And I, you'd be surprised. I want you to know that the boy who stacks my grocery puts Christmas cards in my grocery sack. I got uh, aggravated because they changed managers. I liked the manager at that particular store. I liked him real well. We developed quite a rapport, and I wrote a letter to the main Skaggs office in Utah, to Mr. Skaggs, and told him I didn't like it. And they sent the new manager out to my house to try to convince me not to change stores. <laughs> you know. And I told him, I said, I wasn't going to change stores. I just didn't like you moving my man. You know, we don't like change. And I said, you know, we've got a rule that calls, if it, if it works, don't fix it. And he said, we're going to have to look into that. And so he's back with Skaggs again. You know. And that was just one little letter. But, you know, I was writing from the heart how I felt. So I've been trying to make amends to these people. And when they do good things for me, I like to let them know it. And I let them know that I appreciate it. And did you know, when you're being nice to someone, they'll kill themselves for you? And the service I have got, you know, I used to get rotten service at the store. You know, they put my bread on the bottle or the pickles. You know. <laughs> my sister and I went to the store one afternoon and... They evidently said something heavy on a thing of pecani sauce, and it went all over the, in the sack, and it got out all in the lining of her trunk, and it's gray. And I said, well, let's call and let them know so that they'll be sure and not do that again. And they came out to her house, brought her a dozen roses, came out and cleaned out her trunk, and did all these things. They went beyond the call of duty because we're nice. It never dawned on me. You know, my mother always said you could catch more flies with sugar than you could with vinegar, and I didn't know what she was talking about because I didn't want flies in the first place. <laughs> but you see, that's a little amends, but it has reaped me big rewards. And the bottom line is when I walk out of there, I feel good because going and spending money for the price of groceries in this day and time is depressing. And I don't like But if I make it fun, I skip behind my cart. I have people that go, hmm. You know, and I really don't care because, see, I feel good. They may think I'm crazy, but I know that I'm so much better than I used to be. They should have seen it when I went down there with my cart like a Sherman tank. So I hit you. <laughs> Get out of the way. Mess with me and I'll cold cock you with a bottle of ketchup. 
You know, there's some funny things that's happened at the grocery store. I can remember one in particular, which has nothing to do with the men's, but it just came to my mind. I'm going to tell you anyway. During J.D.'s drinking, I had to have him with me at all times so I could watch him. So I had him with me at the grocery store one night, and he was bombed out of his mind, and I was looking in the meat counter, and, and I was leaning over looking in the meat counter, and all of a sudden I saw there wasn't anything I wanted, so I moved. Well, he didn't notice that because he's still in the meat counter. And a little old lady, about 75 years old, was out between us. Y'all are eating ahead. And all of a sudden I heard this smack and this scream. And he had said, what do you think about those, honey? And she let out this god-awful scream, and J.D. got instant sober. But he got tongue-tied. And he said, Mama, Mama, well, I, why, 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 she's over there. And I thought she, and she was, and she's in, and she looked at me and I said, I've never seen that man before in my life. And J.D. ran screaming from Safeway. And J.D. hasn't been back to Safeway probably but once or twice since. He said he always gets to feel that little old lady's laying in wait for it. And the horror is he couldn't remember what she looked like, and he hated to go make amends to every little old lady he saw. Okay. I made an amends to all these people that I had done damage to along the roads of life, and I do mean the roads. I was a hostile driver, and if you aggravated me, I might force you off of the road and tell you about your driving. There was a little girl that I forced off in an exit at the freeway one day. How she really had hacked me off. It was one of those, you know, zips around you at 60 miles an hour and then sits down. She made me mad, so I half pushed her off the road. And um, you just lock bumpers and get them off. And I got out and I stomped up to her door and she started rolling her window up. And I said, you needn't think that'll stop me if I won't in there. I told her, I said, how you got a license is beyond me. Now, you can see I was uh, the queen of the road here, you know. Now, I don't know that little girl. I'd be willing to bet you she'd know me. But there were a lot of little girls. I attacked three deer hunters one day. And, you know, in this day and time in Little Rock, you can get your head blown off pulling some of that stuff. So it's a good thing that I got in the program when I did years ago. But I was so crazy that that meant nothing to me. Having my way was more important than being alive, and I didn't realize that was the choice I was making some of those times. And so how do I make an amends for all that? I am a courteous driver. If someone is wanting in the line of traffic, I wait. I let them in. And you'd be surprised how much nicer people are to me. It surprised me because I thought, I'm going to be the only person out there doing this, and my sponsor said it has to start somewhere. You know? Okay, so let it begin with me. You know, I did that, and the, the strange thing about that is that people really began to treat me a lot nicer, and I found out that a lot of stress was removed from my life. I was a white-knuckle driver, you know, because I was so tight on the wheel, like this. And now, you know, it's no big deal. It is no big deal. And another thing, I'm the only person in the world who knows how to drive properly. Well, as is often the case, I get to ride with other people all the time. And you'd be surprised how other people's driving does not bother me anymore 
except for J.D. J.D.'s driving bothers me, and the reason is I focus on it. I figured that one out, you know. I sit there and I look for him to do something wrong because he always does. He never fails to disappoint me. And I got to thinking, you know, if I'm sitting there and I know somebody's looking for me to screw up, I will every time because I'm trying so hard not to that it makes me that way. So I've been trying to learn how to be a lot more accepting of J.D.'s driving. It's not easy. <laughs> we don't drive anything alike, and that's good. <laughs> but, uh, like I say, you, you, you start where you can, and that's something that I continue to work on there. But I'm making amends by keeping my mouth shut about it. You know, I might not like it, but sometimes I have to get locked, y'all, and to sit there and to go on with it. But if I don't like it, you know I have a choice. I don't have to ride with him if I don't want to. And so if I choose to sit in the car, I have the right to, to get in the car, but I also owe him the courtesy of keeping my damn mouth shut. And that's how I try to make an amends for that. Now, I had some amends to make to my sister. I had a lot of friends. I even owed amends to my Al-Anon group because I had come in there many times and monopolized the meeting, telling them about my problem, wanting everybody to take up the whole meeting time for, for my problem. And uh, that was inappropriate also. I had a sponsor, and my sponsor would remind me of that. And so finally one day she told me to shut up and quit acting like a three-year-old. I didn't like that very much. But what she was saying was true because, see, I was having those temper tantrums and I wanted the attention and I'd come to my group for the attention. So I had to make an amends for that. I had a major amends to make. <laughs> the ex-husband. <laughs> now, you know, in the amends step, it says made direct amends wherever possible except when to do so would injure them or others. And boy, I love that except. And I said, now, he's remarried and he's got a family. Now, how would he feel about an ex-wife contacting him? And how would his wife feel about the ex-wife contacting him? And I don't think if that were me, I would like that. So I said, that's just one of those I'll just have to forget about. Okay? And I did it in all sincerity. I want you to know I was very sincere. And every year at Christmas time, my mother would receive a Christmas card with a letter from my ex-husband. And over the years, and then all of a sudden, it was around January, February one year, she got a letter. And this was unheard of. And my mother would always let me know when she'd got something from him. And of course, I had to read it. You know how we are. And in this letter, he talked about the fact that his wife had died of cancer. And that he had a 12 or 13-year-old daughter to raise. And how fearful he was of having to do that alone. And I went home, and I felt sorry for him. And then all of a sudden, I want you to know a lump of fear came in the middle of my gut that you would not believe because see, my excuse was gone. My excuse for not making that amends was gone. And I said, no, no, no. And I went on. And Mama got another letter the next month from him. What's with these cockamamie letters? Because every time one of the letters would come, I would know. I would know this was something I needed to do. And I was fighting it with every fiber of my being. Yet had you asked me, are you willing? I thought I was willing, and now I knew that I'd been lying to myself one more time. That I wasn't willing to make it because the opportunity was upon me, and I was balking. And I knew that at some of these we balked. We tried to find an easier, softer way. But the results are nil. 
And I wanted to do what was the right thing to do. You know, that's the reason amends are there. It's the right thing to do. When you've harmed someone, the right thing to do is to try to correct that. And so I didn't know what in the world I was going to do. So I prayed about it, and it seemed like God tortured me. And what it was was my conscience torturing me. Would not leave me alone. I dreamed about making that amends. I couldn't get it off my mind. So finally one afternoon I said, All right! All right already! I'll make the dumb amends. I'll call. And then I called the information down in Texas where he lives. And sure, and I kept saying, Maybe they won't have his number. Maybe it's not listed and I'm off the hook. They knew his number and they gave it to me. Maybe he won't be home. He was home. His little girl answered the phone. And then that was strange because I didn't know what to say to that child. She... I said, is your father at home? And she said, yes, may I ask who's calling? And I said, uh, tell him it's someone from the past. Because I didn't know if he had said anything to her about being married before, and I did not want to cause that man. I had not come to make an amends to cause problems. And when he got on the phone, I talked to him for a few minutes, and um, he said, who is this? And I said, well, it's Mary Pearl. And he said, Mary Pearl who? <laughs> a good old ego, uh, ego leveler, you know. Because he never called me Mary Pearl. He had, I had a nickname that he called me that I didn't like. And I told him who I was. And he said, well, you didn't sound like yourself. And I said, well, I hope I'm not the same person that you knew. And we kept on talking. And uh, he said, um, I said, I bet you're wondering why I've called. He said, the thought has crossed my mind. Because he had not heard from me in about 15, 16 years. And I said, well, I'm in a program that requires that I clean up the wreckage of my past, of which you're part of. And I said, now I know, you see, I had taken this man's inheritance. He was mad at his grandfather when his grandfather died, but his sister did the right thing and sent him half the money in a cashier's check, which I intercepted and spent. And it was several thousand dollars. And I said, I know that I owe you the amends for the inheritance that I spent. I bought me a whole house full of furniture. And And I said, then for all the other things that I've done, what can I do to make it up to you? And he said, are you an Alcoholics Anonymous? <laughs> and I said, close. <laughs> I said, I'm an Al-Anon. I said, why did you ask? And he said, well, I was just wondering because I've been sober for eight months in Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. He didn't drink when we were married. He drank very few times when we were married. And I said, that found that hard to believe. And I said, and worse yet, you've ruined my story. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, when I would talk, I would tell him that you weren't sick enough for me. I had to marry an alcoholic. I said, you ruined it. <laughs> and we laughed and we talked. And he said, now, about the money. He said, you know, in normal circumstances, a man provides for his family. And he said, all you ever asked for was a place to live and some furniture. And he said, those were the two things that I refused to give you. 
Well, he would never buy a house and he would never buy any furniture because he was in the military. And he couldn't see dragging furniture all over the country and what have you. And he said, but yet it was something you wanted. And he said, I feel like in order. He said, how about you accept my amends for not doing that by not paying the money and keeping the furniture? He said, that's what would make me feel fair about this. And that was very generous of that man. Very generous. And he said, and as far as the harm for the other things, he said, I've done plenty of things to you too. And he said, but I can't see any point in us going a tit for tat and itemizing it. He said, why don't we both just free each other from this mess? And I said, fine and dandy. So I gave him a clean bill of health and he gave me one. And when we hung up the phone, we could be friends now. Something we had never been. And he said, if you're down here, look me up or vice versa. And I said, no problem. And you know, that was nice. I got off that phone and I realized that was the last major amends from the past that I do what to do with. That I had been carrying that for all those years in the program and I felt free. I felt so free because I didn't have that hanging over my head anymore because I always felt guilty when they would talk about making amends to ex-husbands and what have you. And I'd think, that's easy for you. You can do that, but you see, I can't. But God gave me the, the way that I could, and that freed me. Now, there was mother. Oh, before I get to mother, let's, let's not get to mother right now. <laughs> let's go to J.R. Now, you've heard about J.D. Now, y'all think J.R.'s on Dallas, don't you? Well, my sister was married to J.R. See, in the South, you're either J.R., J.D., R.T., B.T. You know, we all go by initials or double names. Well, now, J.R., I had blackmailed for years because I knew something on him that I knew that if my sister knew, he'd be out. And he knew it, too. And I didn't feel that he was nice enough to my sister. And so I would go to him and tell him what I thought she needed, did a little managing controlling. And her wedding ring, the back of her wedding ring wore through. And I happened to notice she wasn't wearing it. And I said, what's the matter? And she said, well, I mentioned it to Jr., but it's no big deal to him. And I thought, well, it's a big deal to me. <laughs> so I told Jr. what I thought he ought to do. I said, I got to look at that ring and that diamond's about the size of an ass ass. I mean, it was small, small, small. <laughs> and I said, you know, Dorothy ought to have one of those nice, big, wide bands that goes all the way across with there's lots of diamonds in it. And he said, no. I said, oh, yes, I think so. And he said, well, I just can't. I said, you'll find a way. And he said, well, I don't know how. And I said, I do. So I went down and bought my sister a ring and wrapped it up and put it under the tree. And he paid for it for Christmas. And when she opened that ring box, I wouldn't take a million dollars for that look on her face. Because it did please her and it did make her happy. And I'm not sad that I did that. But it was wrong. an honest program, girls. <laughs> well, after I got in the program, my brother-in-law died in a, in a car accident as a result of. He died on Thursday after the wreck on Sunday. And you see, I never got a chance to make amends for using the material I had on him all those years, and I did feel bad about doing it. And I did not use it anymore after I came in the program, but I had for years and years. I'd used it since the time I was 14 years old until I was in my 30s. And so, I didn't know how to quite to make an amends. 
And I was told to go out to the cemetery and to have a conversation with J.R. And it's a good thing, because, see, our plots are side by side. God knows you don't want him haunting you in eternity. <laughs> so I went out there, and I had a conversation with J.R., and I sat down, and I told him what a miserable person I always felt he was, and how I hated what he did to my sister, how I hated it. I told him exactly how I felt, and then I went on, and I told him that what I had done to him all those years was not right, and that I was going to make an amends to him by not doing that to another living human being. As long as I live, it is, it is humanly possible. I don't want to ever blackmail, emotionally blackmail, another human being. Because that was a terrible thing that I did when I got to thinking about it. Because you see the guilt and the shame and the remorse that I felt from what I had done about things. I sure didn't need somebody holding it over my head and throwing it up to me the rest of my life. And that's what I was basically doing with this man. So that was how I made an amends to him. Now, becoming willing to make an amends means I'm willing to accept the responsibility now for my actions. That's all it amounts to is I'm willing now to accept the responsibility. Now, there's a lot of healing that takes place, but be careful when you go to make an amends that you don't dump your garbage. That's not what it's for. It is not that you don't make an amends at someone else's expense. The 12 and 12 says we're hard on ourselves, we're easy on others. Now, um, an amends process sometimes can take a long time. And this was going to be the case with me and my mother. You see, I went to her right after I came in the program. I went to my first meeting on amends. That's the reason these steps are in order, girls. Don't try to take them out of order. Because, see, I just went to a meeting on amends and ran over to my mother's and I said, you know, you've always thought I hated you. Well, I did. That's not the way to start an amends. But that was my purpose that day. I was wanting to go over there. And it wasn't because I had dying, dying love for my mother, because I didn't. But I didn't want there to be this garbage between us. I had this horror that she was going to die, and there was going to be this, and she was going to haunt me, because she'd tell me she was. And, I, you know, I didn't want her to haunt me. I didn't want this bad feeling between us to be, and my mother died. I just didn't want that at all. And so what it ended up was, years later, I had to go back and make an amends for the amends because I made it even worse. You know, thinking someone hates you is one thing. Hearing it, I hate you, is something else, you know. Well, God sent a girl. I began to pray, and I asked God that I wanted the relationship healed between me and my mother. I wanted that relationship healed, if it be possible. Because I had talked to enough people by this time in the program who had been raised in alcoholism to know that my mother did not have a lot of coping skills and she did not have a lot of healthy information. And you know, you, if you can't transmit what you don't have, and that had begun to occur to me by listening to the people in the meetings talking about living in the alcoholic home. And so I prayed and I asked God to help me and all of a sudden this girl came from Missouri down to our group. And Betty had done some work with her relationship with her mother. And I began to talk to Betty. And the first thing Betty told me that I didn't want to hear was, she said, you don't accept your own limitations, therefore you don't accept your mother. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? And she said, well, your mother's concerned you don't accept her limitations, and you don't accept yours either. She said, it always starts with you. You don't accept what you're... You know, I wasn't capable of giving certain things. And I couldn't accept that because I would tell myself that I'm all wonderful. I mean, I was on. Well, hey, nani nani and an ala nani too. You know, 
I was so good, you know. And I was so much better than I was, but I was not a saint, but I would say, well, compared to them, I am, you know. And every time I realized, every time I went over to my mother, what I wanted from my mother was approval. And all my life, the one thing she refused to give me was approval. And I would go over there every time saying, this time it's going to be different. I'm going to get this, I'm going to give her this gift and something she's really wanted, and now she's going to be happy, and she's going to say, good girl, you did good. It wouldn't happen. And then I'd go home devastated, and I would hate her for not telling me. All I wanted her was to validate me and tell me I was okay. That's all in the hell I wanted from her. And she couldn't do that for me, or wouldn't do that for me. And it really, really hurt me. And so Betty said, well, accept that limitation. She said, you know, you have that need, that sick need to go over there. She said, you're a circle saw jumper. You don't know when you've been cut. You keep going back for more. She said, you're going to a dry hole, expecting it to be different every time. She said, accept her like she is. And I said, but I don't like her. She said, you don't have to like her. Just accept it. Okay. So I fought that. And then finally one night, as I was going home from the meeting, and I was just devastated that night because Betty had really crawled my frame. And I was crying, and as I was crossing the bridge going from one city to the next, as I crossed the Arkansas River, I said, All right, God, I give up. I've asked you to be my father and to give me the love that I missed from my daddy. I guess you're going to have to be my mama too, because I don't have one. And I said, You're going to have to give me all that love that I've wanted from a mama because I don't have one that's capable of doing that for me. And I need it. I feel like I need it. I feel like there's a hole inside of me because my mama doesn't love me. And I wanted that so desperately. And you couldn't love me enough to fill that hole. You couldn't do it. And so I cried all the way home. And I felt like that I had a scar on my heart. That's exactly how I felt. Well, some more time went by and I did some more inventories. And I found that when I would go over to Mother, if I would just accept her like she was and not argue with her, and not try to make her any different, that we didn't get into so much hassle. Because normally, Mother and I, were together. Obviously, we're an awful lot alike. And that was another reality I didn't like to hear. <laughs> you know? And I said, you know, it's funny. She has some good qualities. Why didn't I inherit any of those? But I inherited her need to bitch and nag and gripe and complain. You know, I seem to have done that and to be argumentative. That was, that was Mother. And those were the things that I found in myself that I sure didn't like. So some more time went on. And then one day, when I was talking at a conference, I realized the relationship that I had with my daddy was not a healthy one. You know, somebody that spoils you so rotten. And what I had done, I, when daddy died, I made him a saint and her the devil. I did that in my mind. And I discounted everything she did because it wasn't as good as what daddy would have done. And I never gave that woman a chance. And I saw that, and I did not know what to do with it. And I just prayed about it because I know I had been over to my mama's. I've been over there and tried to make amends to her a hundred times, and we'd always end up in a fight. It never went the way I thought it ought to go. And so some more time went past, and one afternoon I was going to the bank, and the voice inside said, Go by mother's today. Okay. So I drove by my mother's to visit with her for a few minutes, and she was talking about something that happened when Daddy died. And she said, What do you think about it? Oh, God, here we go. And I said, well, Mama, I was only 12 at the time, and this is how it appeared to me. And I expected her to say, are you calling me a liar? Because normally, you know, if our opinions differ, I'm calling her a liar. And she said, well, you know, memories may just be that. 
they don't necessarily have to be real, but how you choose to remember something. And I thought, God, that almost sounded like a program type comment. <laughs> and she said, you know, I never did understand when your daddy died how you came to be such an honorary kid. And I said, well, I was getting even with you for being alive. And she said, what do you mean? And I said, well, I felt like when Daddy died, the only person who loved me died. And I was mad at you for being the one there, and I hated you for not loving me. And she said, not loving you? And I said, exactly. And she said, I put a roof over your head. I put food in your mouth. I made you clothes to wear. I gave you much better than I ever had. And you know, all of a sudden it hit me. Now, my mother left home when she was 13 because her daddy had tried to rape her. She had lived out of garbage cans, under bridges. She had been a street person back in those days. She didn't know what it was to love like I was asking her to love. And all of a sudden, the realization that I had been asking that woman to do something she didn't know how to do. You know, that's a lot different than just won't do. But if you don't know how, and I thought, my God, what a burden I put on her all these years. Asking her to give me something she didn't have. No wonder she failed all the time. The, standard, the standards that I had set were impossible. And guilt, now let's talk guilt. And let's talk remorse now. All of a sudden, I knew now I could make my amends and mean it from my heart. Up to then, I was going to go through the motions in order so that she wouldn't die and there would be bad feelings. See, it had nothing to do with me being wrong. See? It was to save my conscience. And so I said, Mama, I want to know how I can make it up to you to forgive me for doing all the things that I have done all these years that have hurt you, many of them on purpose. And she looked at me and she said, Forgive me for not being the kind of mother that you wanted, that you needed. And, you know, she was the kind of mother that I needed because, you know, all those rules and regulations and things that I bucked against all my life were the principles I was trying to live by now. My mother gave me the best she had, and it was darn good. It just didn't come in the package that I wanted it to. She gave me a whole bunch. And she put her arms around me, and she held me for the first time. And she said, I love you. Baby, I've always loved you. And I thought, I, you know, it can't get any better than this. It can't get any better. And that began the healing of our relationship. And we enjoyed that relationship for a number of years. And then I came to Oregon. And while I was here in Oregon, something happened back home. In all seriousness, something did happen. Now, my mother is 86 years old, and her mind isn't always right. And sometimes mother is getting, she's getting paranoid, and she thinks things happen that don't necessarily happen, but they're real to her. And there's no way to fight that. You just have to accept that happened. Well, mother took an, uh, an action against an imagined wrong, and she's chosen not to have me in her life anymore. Now, we're in another growth period. <laughs> And it's painful. It's painful for our family because not only did she do it in such a manner, but she caused family to go against family. And there's so few of us left. She alienated my nephew. Uh, 
my husband, my sister, I mean, she's done a, a real good job this time. And I don't know what it'll take to heal it. All I know is I have to be willing to do what I have to do. And I've learned in this program that even though my mother has wronged me, that I feel, I have to go ahead and I have to be a good and loving daughter because I have to live with what I do. I did not confront her on this. Uh, I felt like there would be nothing gained by confronting her on it. And then I found out later my sister had jumped her bad. And so I'm glad I didn't find it necessary to do that. My mother doesn't know what to do with that because normally when we have it out, well, there is the confrontation and she doesn't know what to do with it. And so she acts now as if it didn't happen. But there was action that, ta that was taken that can't be undone that has caused great harm. And it is extremely painful. And that's been hard for me to come. Uh, I've had to share that a couple of times in the last month because, you know, I'd love to let you think that it was wonderful forever and ever and ever. But this is the real world, and that doesn't mean that it won't be good again at some point. But for today, it's not real good. And I'm trying to deal with it on the inside, but I have a lot of pain about it, and I have anger about it, and I'm having to work through these things. But that's what our tools with Fulcrum are for. I have tools that I didn't have all my life that I can use now. And the bottom line is I didn't have to hate her for doing what she did. Always before I would have hated her for what she did. I hate what she did, but I don't hate her for doing it. And that makes a difference because I can be around her when she will allow me to, and I don't have to hate her. And I'm able to treat her like a kind and loving daughter. When I was in Wyoming last week, uh, I brought her back. She has a rock collection, and I brought her back rocks to go in her rock collection. And, I, you know, I, didn't, I looked at it, and I saw those rocks, and I thought, gee, my mom would like that, but my mom doesn't like me right now. And I thought, I don't care. What would a kind and loving daughter do? I'll act as if until I can. And so I went ahead and got the rocks anyway. It's not a big deal, but the action's a big deal because I'm having to go ahead and act as if. Okay. Um, amends are healing. And like I say, we never know when somebody's going to get sick again. You know, I could have had the slip just as well as her because I've had slips in this program. I've had times when I have backed myself into corners and where I owed myself an amends. You know, I owe myself an amends when I get complacent with my program. You'd be surprised. And you see, these things that happen sometimes, there's a reason for everything that happens in my life. And I'm being taught something right now, and I don't know what I'm being taught or how I need to use it, but it will be revealed to me as I need to know it because there are lessons. I want to tell you about starting to make an amends to my alcoholic, to J.D. He's one of the most kind, sweet, loving men, and I am very blessed by God to have him in my life. I didn't think that, you know, for a long time. And I want to tell you how an amends can start and what can happen as a result of little teeny amends. J.D. steals my cigarettes. I used to be a smoker, heavy smoker. And I'd wake up in the morning, and when J.D. got sober in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, he decided he was going to get good. <laughs> so he was going to quit smoking, he was going to quit drinking, he was going to quit screwing around. And some of those I approved of. <laughs> and he was going to quit a lot of things. And all he did was quit buying, and he would steal my cigarettes. Now, I'm sure if you're an alcoholic, if someone, if you saved yourself just enough to get you started the next morning, and you got up and the somebody you was living with drank it, 
You'd be hot. Well, see, he'd get up before I would, and he'd smoke my cigarettes I had left over from the night before to save myself to start that day. Now, that was bad news. It was a biggie. And so we'd get in this fight, and one morning I was in there, and I was just cussing and raving. He said, I don't have to listen to this. I'm going to hurt your mother. So he liked my mother. And that was another thorn in my side at that time. <laughs> and so he got up, and he left. And no, I was fuming, and the phone rang, and it was one of the girls in our Al-Nine group. And she said, what's the matter with you? And I said, that SOB stole my cigarettes again. And she said, well, what's the matter, honey? Don't you have any money? And I said, well, sure, I got money. She said, then why don't you shut up and go buy one? <laughs> well, he was supposed to go buy because he was the one that smoked it. I said, it's the principal of things. She said, principal of things, you need cigarettes. And I said, well, and she said, shut up, go buy you some cigarettes and come back and call me. So I went down to the store, bought me a pack of cigarettes or two and came back to the house. And I called her and she said, now you ready to make that amends? I said, amends for what? And she said, for balling him out. And I said, she stole the cigarettes. She said, it doesn't make any difference what they do. It's what you do. And you cussed him out and you treated him less than you would another human being. And she said, for that, you need to. And I said, well, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> I'm still going to do it. And she said, yes, you will. She said, you said you want to work the program. I said, I will. She said, that's part of the program. And I said, I don't want that part. <laughs> and she said, well, if you don't make it today, you're going to have to make it later. And the longer you put it off, the harder it is going to be to make. I said, all right. I'll go make the tacky amends. So I went over and he was mowing the lawn in Mama's backfield and as I approached, he stopped and squared off. <laughs> and I, I went up to him and I said, <clears throat> I was wrong. He said, what did you say? I was wrong. What? I'm sorry. I threw such a fit. I was wrong. He said, what did you say? <laughs> I said I was sorry and I was wrong. And he looked at me and big tears began to run down his face. He said, do you realize you have never been sorry or wrong in all the years I've known you? And I thought, that's a lie. And I begin to stand there, and I'm trying to think of a time that I had told him I was wrong and I was sorry, you know. And I couldn't. And then I started crying. And we held each other out there in the old backfield by the lawnmower, and we cried together. Because I was trying to be different, and he was trying to be different. We were trying to make some changes, and there had been a lot of hurt that we had done to one another during all those years. But that began the healing. Another healing took place when we began to pray together. You know, he asked me one time, he said, how can I make it up to you for all the harm that I've done, our marriage, and the things I've done, things I've said? And I told him, I said, J.D., quit the womanizing. And if you're sober each day, that makes up for every one of those drunks that you have. I said, let's just try to live today and let the past go. And I have not found it necessary to ask him names, places, dates, what they look like, none of that bullshit. I let it go. 
and to my knowledge, we've not had a problem in that area. And as long as I don't know, it ain't going to hurt me. But I used to be in denial about it, and I'm not. Because, you know, I know that man loves me. I can see it in his eyes. I can feel it in his touch. I know he cares for me. And I care for him. I don't need him in that sick way. I don't love him today because I have to have somebody there. Because if somebody, could have been anybody. I just never wanted to be alone. That's not the reason he's there. He's there because I love him. And it's because I love him that I need him to be in my life. Not because I'm loving him because I need him. It's altogether different. Our relationship has changed. And it started with the amends. And how do you make an amends to a man you tried to kill? When you think about it, how do you make an amends? You know, he was scared of me for a long time. We made a joke about it. He put a sign on the patio that said, She's dangerous when provoked. I like it better than the beware of the bitch sign. Um, and you see, those signs were valid. <laughs> you know, That's the trouble. My neighbors would tell you those signs are valid. Now, how do you make amends to your neighbor? You know, we created a lot of confusion in our neighborhood, and it was after we quit doing it that I recognized there was another sick family down the street. The police are there at their house every day. Um, they chase each other around the yard with shotguns. You know, I just did mine inside the house. That's all. That was all the difference was. I didn't bring it outside. I didn't think. And then I had a neighbor that asked me one day, and Jadie had been sober at that time four or five years, and she said, your husband doesn't drink anymore, does he? And I said, no, not for today. And she said, well, I didn't think so. God, we haven't seen you acting weird in a long time. <laughs> and I thought, me acting weird, yeah. I would run out in the middle of the backyard in my nightgown because we'd be in a fight and I'd get loud and J.D.'s quiet. And he'd say, don't yell. And when I got mad, I got loud, you know. And he'd say, why don't you just tell the whole neighborhood? And I said, okay. And I went right out in the middle of the backyard in my nightgown. And I said, a neighborhood, a teacher neighborhood. J.D. is a son of it. Did you get that? A son of a bitch. And then I walked back in the house and said, I guess I showed him. But the neighbors didn't look at him funny. <laughs> My next door neighbor, if she was hanging clothes on the line and I went out in the back, she went in the house. I don't blame her. I had a neighbor on the other side that had a string of little kids. Hated little kids. One of the reasons I hated little kids was I couldn't have any. And that was one of my self-defense mechanisms because I was sterile. And I would say to myself, people would say, you ever notice how people in normal conversation assume that you ought to be having kids? It's the thing you should do, you know. There's something wrong with a woman that doesn't have children. They'll tell you that, you know. And they come up to you and they'll say, how many children do you have? And I'll say, none. And they'll say, why? Like, what's wrong with you? And I'd say, I hate kids. That shuts them up. And I said it so long I believed it. And then I have, like I say, this woman lives next door, and I knew why I believed it. Because she had these little kids, and she had a sick home. Her husband is a compulsive gambler as well as an alcoholic, practicing alcoholic. 
and she would turn her kids loose on the neighborhood. I'm sure this was to gain some sanity for herself. But I didn't like being the recipient of the little tribe as it would go across. Now, when I was a kid, I used to walk catty corner across one of our neighbor's yards going to school, and he'd come out there and flog me and tell me, don't walk across my yard, you'll make a path. And I couldn't see what the big deal was. Well, what goes round comes round. And I know what the big deal is, because I've got these big, nasty trees, and it's hard to grow grass under big, nasty trees in the south when you have water problems. And so I would be out there, and I'd nurture it and put all my little seed out and everything, and these kids would go right across the middle of my yard. And they had to go out of their way to do it. Because I have a fence that goes to the end of the yard, and they would go around the end of the fence, come in, walk across the yard, go back out of the fence, and over that was. Now, they really had to do that. And I asked her to please ask her children not to do this because I had fresh grass seed planted out there. And I heard her giving them the lecture. The old bitch next door don't want you in her yard. (laughs) Now, I don't know what happened to respect for people's property. I don't think it exists today in a lot of cases. But anyway, this irritated me. And so the next thing I know, one day I'm seeing, and guess what? She's leading the little herd of geese herself, and she's walking inside, walking across my yard and around. And I decided, well, I can put a stop to that. I had this giant yellow bell bush in the backyard, and I moved it. And I mean, it almost took a front end loader to make a hole big enough. I mean, we're talking a big hole. And she came running out of her house, and she said, I suppose you realize you're blocking the path. And I said, precisely. It's my yard. If I want elephants in it, I'll bring them here. Other than that, you keep out of it. So that wasn't a nice way to do. So I had to learn to be a kind and loving neighbor. I didn't have to yell at her kids. I could say, how are you doing today? And it really took them back. They didn't know what to think. Because normally, if they knocked their ball in my yard, they considered it gone. And I'd go out there and get the ball, and I'd toss it back to them. And they couldn't understand that, because normally I kept them. And tell them, don't hit it in my yard! You know, I was mad at the world all the time. And the kids don't treat me like that. They don't treat me like that anymore, and it's because I've changed. And I'm being nice to them. I'm trying to be a good neighbor. Uh, she can be running around out there in the yard, and I can hear her sometimes, and she even calls me and borrows a cup of flour or something occasionally. We're not close, but we are neighbors, and we're not bad neighbors. I have tried to uh, give her some information on Al-Anon, and she said, thank you very much, but I don't need anything. And I said, well, if you ever change your mind, and I have turned that one over. And I have seen that woman go down over the years. She now converses on about a six-year-old level. She keeps kids in the home, and that's all she's ever around is kids. Because her husband, I haven't seen him in months now. And it's sad. And she knows it's there, but I don't try to force it on her. You know, once I, I used to send stuff anonymously through the mail to people. <laughs> Just a little, you know, you go to Al-Anon because see, there's a whole fertile field of people for you to manage and control. Um, with my sister. I always loved my sister. But like I say, in our family, we did not say, I love you. We didn't hug one another. We didn't do any of those things. And I didn't know how. And I wanted to be a more of a kind and make a living amends to my sister and be more of the kind of person to her that I wanted her to be back. And so I, I said something to her one day. I said, you know, and, and, and I'm going to be honest with you. It was like when J.R. died, she was set free. She had been like a prisoner for years, an emotional prisoner. And uh, I was able to get a lot closer to my sister now than I had ever had an opportunity before. 
And I told her one day, I said, you know, Dorothy, I know you love me. Because you're always doing things for me. But I'd love sometimes just to hear you say it. And she said, well, you know I do. Okay. And I said, well, okay. And then one day I was sitting in my office, and in the mail came a piece of white bond paper, and in red felt tip it said, I love you, with a D down at the bottom. I have that to this day. It's real, real special to me. And then there was the day that we went shopping and we came home and as she was leaving, going out the door, she said, love you. And then over a more period of time, there was the day that she put her arms around me and she said, you know something? I love you and I'm real proud of you. And I love those people for helping you. And you know who took me to the airport when I left the other morning? It's six in the morning. Now that's love. Because she has to be at work at 7.30. She took me to the airport and she put her arms around me and she says, I love you, go and have a good time and come home safely. Now this was the one I couldn't talk to. But as I began to act like a kind and loving sister, making a living amends, then my sister was free to love me back. Amends shows maturity. You begin to grow up when you begin to make amends. Because you begin to be an adult, an adult's responsible for his actions. And you know, we'd like to be like a little kid, just do it and get away with it. You know, whipping, and my mother wasn't going to say she was physically abusive, but whippings didn't bother me because they were over and done with. What bothered me was the things that were said, the harmful things that hurt so bad. Those were the things that really hurt. Sure, whippings can leave physical scars on your body, but the scars on your heart to me are the ones that are the hardest to remove. And I have to be willing to dissolve those scars myself by forgiving that other person. And that's hard, but it's well worth the trip. I can make mistakes, and you can make mistakes. And you know, really, it's very seldom there's a mistake that's so great that it can't be healed in some way. But God knows the answers to this situation with me and my mother. It looks to me in the natural like there's nothing that'll ever be able to heal this problem. But I know that this is God's opportunity. Because when it looks impossible, it can be. But nothing's impossible for my God. And so I'm sure he's working on it. Even as we stand here. Thank you. Tomorrow morning we'll do 10, 11, and 12. Thank you.